0: KRCL.
1: Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. I am Nick Burns. This is a Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives everywhere gosh on the show today i have the pleasure of talking with two different writers pulitzer prize winner katherine schultz about her new book lost and found which grew out of her essay in the new yorker magazine later on the show we'll revisit the a's and b's of our inland sea with author nicole anderson and the new song from across the pond in england about the book and we'll talk with daisy pitkin about her new book On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. But for right now, I wanna jump right into this. Katherine Schultz, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, your new book, Lost and Found. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. I wanna get into this right away. If it's okay, I really found your book to be really, truly belle It was such a pleasure to read. Um, thank you for that. It's not often you get a book that's just a treat to jump into like yours is. Oh, that's so kind of you to say. And I'm, I must say that you know your book is basically three essays, but to me, I was reading a novel. every time I had a chance to sit down or before bed or after dinner or whatever it might be, it was just a joy to join your world again. And I thought for a couple three essays, that was pretty fantastic. Mm, that's nice of you to say it's so wonderful to hear it
0: described as a novel, because, in a sense, you know, like novels, this book is very character driven. Uh, and, and although it's called a memoir, the main character is, is definitely not me. Uh, it's, it's really my father and my partner. And, yeah. uh, you know, insofar as I, I had a goal or a hope for this book, uh, I, you know, I know not all people will like it, but I, but I hope readers love those two characters as much as I did. So I'm very pleased to, to hear that it felt to you uh, that it read like a novel in a place you just kept wanting to return to.
1: Oh, no, it was like I was returning and joining your world and your perception of these two, you know, most important people in your life or among the most important. Um, you fill the book with references to other writers, especially poets, um, full of quotes from poets that many readers will recognize from high school and college and some maybe they won't, but do you think all these literary references or, or how do you think all these references maybe change your audience? Mm.
0: Well, I I don't know. I mean, I know that uh, you're right. There's quite a lot of poetry in the book. In fact, in some ways, I think of it as kind of a covert poetry anthology. (laughs) And (laughs) I guess to me, you know, I I am writing primarily uh, about love and grief, which uh, I'm not the first person to do that. <laughs> uh, it, those are topics that have been much written about uh, and in some cases uh, by by far greater writers than I could ever hope to be. And I really do admire the way that poetry is capable of compressing these grand experiences and grand emotions into uh, these incredibly compact kind of jolting bits of of, uh, of language and, and emotion that really stays with you. And so it seemed foolish for me not to not, not to borrow what I couldn't figure out how to yeah. say better. And I hope for readers it um for those who know some of these poets and other authors, I hope it's a joy to re-encounter them, and for those who don't, I, I hope at least some of them think, you know, oh gosh, I've always meant to be, you know, the works of James Baldwin, or oh, I've never heard of this poet Zimborska, I'll, I'll, I'll go look her up and see if I like anything else by her. So, I hope that, you know, I, I love books that lead me to other books, and I hope that this book does that for at least some readers as well.
1: Oh, I'm sure it will. So, Lost and Found, I, 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 if it's okay, I want to get into the second half of your book first, The Found Essay. Um, I'm very curious, like I said, it was a joy to join your world, but then when I meet your wife, it's with this a letter initial C and not the full name.
0: Yeah, that's right, uh, and to be clear, that's not, that, that decision was not because I wanted to keep her identity secret, uh, or or I was trying to tease anyone. Um, Her identity isn't secret at all. First of all, I I say her full name in the acknowledgements. And second of all, she's a a public figure in her own right. Uh, She's Casey Sepp, a fellow New Yorker staff writer and and author of a a tremendous and tremendously acclaimed uh, book about Harper Lee called Furious Hours. Uh, So I wasn't... um, as I said, I wasn't trying to, to create an air of mystery around it. Okay. Um, that decision came about, uh, I guess, for two reasons. The first is that, so I love that we're talking about the found section first, uh, because I actually wrote it first. <laughs> the very oh. first scene of the book I ever wrote was the scene where my partner and I met for the first time. Uh, and oh. I started there uh, because I knew it would be really fun to write. And I was excited to write it. And it was really fun to write. And And when I first did it, I didn't use any name at all. I just used pronouns, you know, she and her, which felt incredibly true to the experience of falling in love, right? I mean, in that moment, when you meet someone and then it's the someone. There's kind of no one else in the world. Like you don't need to indicate them in any other way because because they're all you're thinking about. And, and of course that's what you're talking about. It's what you're always talking about and thinking about. So it, it it felt exactly right. But then of course, after you know, five or six or seven paragraphs, um, it's it's just grammatically completely unsustainable to only use pronouns you know your poor reader is like are you talking about this woman you just met or are you talking about your mom or the house cat or you know you you, you just can't sustain it so I realized I couldn't do that and and that's what led me to using this initial c uh, instead Um, which i think was partly a nod to the fact that uh, my partner is a more private person than i am and okay uh, you know everything everything in the book is a is a full and an honest accounting of whatever it is that i'm writing about but of course neither my book nor any other memoir is a uh, is a complete account of anyone's life and certainly not this book which is really only partly a memoir, right? And partly is trying to explore these much larger ideas about loss and discovery and and kind of selectively using these crucial moments from my life to do so. So, you know, in some ways it was just a nod to the, to the inner workings of memoir, you know, a way of saying, yes, you know, you get, you get this, this part of this person, the part part that kind of comes up front, but, but she gets to keep all the rest and and I get to keep all the rest.
1: Oh, interesting. Thank you. Speaking of speaking of you talking about C, and again you're both staff writers at the New Yorker. This is no big secret or anything, but but I was very intrigued. You have you had I should say this upper middle class northern suburban secular Jewish upbringing. Uh, you mentioned that in your Shaker Heights school, Shaker Heights rather school. Your friends, parents, doctors, lawyers, and so on. But your wife's upbringing is you know Eastern Shore, Southern conservative rural 4-h christian and typically to me that kind of those kinds of cultural and economic differences really create some of the hardest relationship issues but for you to man you just blow past that it's amazing do you have advice for other people (laughs) um well i tend to be
0: cautious about giving advice i mean my main advice about love is uh is is you know pick the right person and, and everything, everything else will work itself out, which of course is not that practical as advice goes. Um, but, you know, I, I, I share your instinct, right? You know, when Casey and I met, I also thought that the, the, these, these enormous differences between us, specifically the difference of class background and, and to a lesser extent, religious background, but chiefly the class background,
2: mm. I
0: really thought um, might be difficult and and prickly and, and kind of raise ongoing issues. And as it turns out, it really did not, which isn't to say that, you know, there aren't other differences and issues between us. There are, as with every couple. And I, I try to write very forthrightly about that in the book. Yeah. But for me, at least, I have found uh, that the differences between us, those kinds of differences, far from being obstacles, have been unbelievably rewarding. You know, I I feel like I got an extra set of eyes on the world Mm. and and therefore the world became bigger and more interesting to me. There's no question that we see things differently and react to things differently on the basis of our very different uh, class backgrounds. And, you know, I I sometimes feel that my partner has a kind of x-ray vision for the workings of power and money in the world in a way that I don't, and an x-ray vision for injustice and, uh, uh, and economic duress, and a very deep and instinctive response to those things uh, in a way that I like to think I have, because I like to think of myself as a compassionate person who, who cares about others and wants to make the world a, a more just an and equitable and compassionate place uh, but but there's no question she sees all this far more clearly than i do as one does right i mean one of the one of the effects of growing up in in the upper middle class uh, is is you get to um, ignore all this stuff right it gets to be invisible unto you if you want it to be because it doesn't affect your material life right uh, so so for me it's been an an immense gain to live hmm. with her background and to live with her experience, and I don't know that I bring the same kind of gains to her life, but I'm certainly very grateful that she brings them to mine.
1: Oh, I was going to ask that, but now I now I don't have to. So thank you. By the end of the book, you are living more or less in her neighborhood. Is that still true? Do you still sort of live on the Eastern Shore?
0: Uh, indeed, I am. I'm in my home on the Eastern Shore right now, looking out on our, you know, our our five acres and our farmland and our pond. And I, yes, we're about, uh, about twenty or so minutes from the farm where she grew up, across the county line. We joke it's far enough that her family has to call before they come over. But but,
1: <laughs> but we're very, very much good. we're very
0: much in her home to home home terrain. Yeah, well,
1: I had to move across the country to get away from my parents, but that's a separate story. <laughs> um, you speaking of speaking of where you live and where you're from, in the in the book, you devote a lot more time to your future wife at that point meeting your parents. Than you do to you meeting her parents, um, and I know this is your story and your world. But I was really after I read about C meeting your parents, I was really looking forward to sort of equal time for you meeting them. But it's kind of an imbalance, I thought.
0: Mm. Well, first of all, very sorry to, to disappoint you in oh, that respect. You know, um, but you I'll know, <laughs> I, guess, uh, I guess I guess th- I have two thoughts about that, and one is. It made sense, I think, to dwell on the scene where my parents, but specifically my father and my partner meet, uh, because they are the two main characters of this book. And because this book is to a considerable extent, not only about losing my father and finding my partner, but about the fact that I did those things in very quick succession. You know, I'm grateful to this day that I could write that scene because I could write that scene because they did have the chance to meet, mm. and they they very very easily could have not had that. You know, my my father did not live long after yeah. uh, after that introduction, so it felt it felt crucial to me, to the um, to the structure and to the intellectual and emotional core of the book that that we we experience that moment. Um, but also, of course, you know, without I don't want to give much away most of this book does not operate on the basis of suspense but a little bit of it does and um of course actually uh casey's father plays as significant a role in the book as my own father does uh, yes, just yes. just in a somewhat different way that didn't really require dwelling on the moment uh, when when i first met her parents yeah.
1: no it's very good and and speaking of sort of the tenets of narrative fiction, you did have me on pins and needles wondering, is she ever gonna to get to meet your dad? Did, did <laughs> he get to meet before he passed away? And uh, I actually, that kind of became a page turner. Um, the found that you described, the love that you have found um, is wrapped up in the story of this little boy and a meteorite. Um, and of course, it's kind of a metaphoric Cupid's arrow, a meteor from space. Um, And, and as you get into in the book, your book is much more an anti Ross than a Cupid, that is the love requited, And, you know, that's, that's probably a story less told. And I presume, because you do talk about the mythology there, that's quite deliberate on your part that that the found isn't the flash of a first falling in love at first thought it's, it's this ongoing relationship all the way to you guys, you know, remodeling a house together.
0: Mm, yeah, I mean, I I feel very fortunate because my love story is both. It actually is a story of falling in love at first sight, and and yet, as you as you note, it is uh, it extends well beyond that. And that was certainly very deliberate. I am extremely interested in requited love. I'm interested in happy relationships and in happy families. And these are subjects that are conventionally um, Dismissed as uninteresting or or simply overlooked, I think, especially in modern memoir, which tends to dwell in trauma or dysfunction. And I, I don't say that dismissively. I um, I think it's a wonderful thing that there is space in our hearts and our and our bookshelves uh, for a kind of transparency about difficult experiences. And I think those kinds of memoirs are incredibly valuable. Um, but to my great good fortune, that that wasn't uh, my story to tell. No. Uh, the story I have to tell is a story about happy families and about enduring love. And of course, the reality about happy families and enduring love is that um, they are not spared the basic terms of our existence. And the basic terms of our existence is that that all that we have, we will lose,
2: which is
3: yeah.
0: which is not a very happy thought, you know, and not a very easy one to live with. Uh, but it's but it's very interesting to me to kind of fold those two things. In conjunction, this, this experience of happiness and, and what makes it and, and, and how we get there, you know, and, yeah. and and what a good life looks like and how we reconcile it with the inevitability of of suffering and pain and loss.
1: Well, it's like your book, it's like your book begins when most of those rom com movies end, right? Um, mm. you take it from there. And of course, I have to mention that Andy Porowitz, in his jacket blurb, calls Lost and Found, quote daring, a, mem- a daring colon, I should say, daring a memoir by a happy person, end quote. Um, <laughs> I really quite like that, especially after I got done reading the book. So thank you for including that.
0: Um, oh, I was very grateful to him. I think that's oh. that's an accurate reading of the book. You know, yeah. it is ultimately, although part of it is, of course, a, a, a memoir about grief, I think it is ultimately very much a, a book about joy, really, and gratitude. Oh, oh yeah.
1: Even in even in losing your father, you know, the first part of the book, Lost, um, it's very rich. It's very multilayered. Uh, it's I found it funny in spots. I hope that's OK to say. Um, and, and it's wonderful but, to say oh, thank <laughs> my you. father
0: was a, my father was a very, very funny man. And I, I would have done him a grave disservice if I uh, hadn't uh, tried to sustain some of his comic spirit, including uh, including in the parts of the book that are about his death and my yeah. grief over it.
1: No, I mean it's 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 hard to find it's hard to find joy or humor with hospital visits and having to downsize and hospital beds and hospice care and and all those things. The the lost part of the book, which is the first essay of the three, um, it, it's from what a piece you wrote for the New Yorker, correct?
0: It grew out of that. Yes, um, not long after my dad died, I, I wrote an essay in the New Yorker that was. Partly an elegy to him, but partly a, a reflection on this very strange category of loss, you know. And and it was kind of grappling with this question of like, well, why would I put my dead father in the same category as my, you know, missing cell phone and and the sock that vanished during the wash cycle? Like, what is this linguistic coincidence that there's this insane range of things that that, that we can lose, or is this? in some way meaningful? And do these very different losses somehow teach us something about each other or about ourselves or about the world?
1: And, and you get into that in the found section also, is it, is it a discovery found or a recovery found? Are you finding that missing phone or are you stumbling across a meteorite? Um, was it hard to get that piece in the New Yorker? The magazine was interested in, in that piece or was that a sell on your part?
0: Uh, well, very luckily for me, so'm I'm, I'm a staff writer at the magazine, and um, they have been very generous with me in terms of uh, of allowing me to pursue my own interests and, and being interested in what interests me. So um, no, I, I think I uh, I would have to literally kind of go back through the chain of emails, but I believe I, you know, wrote my editor at some point you know he, he knew my father had died um because okay. i was I, I believe i was on deadline actually for something else when that happened so i'd been <clears> in touch <throat> with the magazine and uh, i told him i might want to write something about it and um then, then he just sort of very patiently sat around and waited until that until that something materialized. And um, as ever, I, I find the magazine to be a wonderful steward of, of my writing. And they were very careful about, you know, steering it into existence in its best possible form. So, you no, know, I'm quite grateful. I mean, obviously, you know, one can't publish infinite personal essays and they very easily could have said, you know, oh, gosh, you know sorry, but, you know, someone else's dad died this year or, you know, whatever, but, um, but no, they were, they were very, they were very uh, generous about it.
1: Well, and with, with a million deaths from COVID and so on, um, there's been a lot of that going around, let's say, sadly. Um, You also describe you and your mother's constant distress, I want to say, over your father's sort of slow cognitive decline. And I think lots of us who are adults face that in our parents, and and maybe that is some of the humor in the book that you indicate that this was less of an issue for him, uh, who maybe was someone who always kind of misplaced the car keys, but this loss was huge for you seeing that and witnessing that. And I wonder now looking back, is there anything that maybe you found in looking at that loss of sort of watching his mental decline, anything to be found in that? I mean,
0: certainly infinite empathy empathy for for everyone else who has ever dealt with any form of that. Um, you know, as it happens, my, my mother and sister and I were very lucky. I kind of go into this in some detail in the book. But my my father's cognitive decline, uh, which was absolutely devastating, proved um, unusually uh, uh, among such experiences. It actually proved to be reversible. It was an unfortunate consequence of um. Uh, kind of cocktail of drugs that he was on. And it went on for, for many years, much longer than it should have, but uh, but we were able to completely reverse it, which was an unimaginable gift. But the experience of going through that um, really did leave me with just incredible um, empathy for, uh, and, and humility about the experience of others who live for years and sometimes decades with loved ones who, uh, who who really do have a kind of steep cognitive decline because you know it's hackneyed and, and everyone has heard it but it is absolutely true that it is I think worse than than almost anything you know physical suffering is suffering is terrible to bear witness to it's it's really awful um, but quite fortunately we live in an era where very often it, it's treatable you know or at least the edge of of, of that suffering can be can be softened and it simply isn't true of cognitive decline we have not found a way to successfully intervene on it and it is just devastating uh, for 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 the loved ones of, of whoever it is whose mind is starting to go in those ways and it can just go on and on and on and on and um you know it really does raise very profound questions about what a what a life should look like you know and under what circumstances we sustain it and what what it is we're supposed to do when that ceases to, to be mm-hmm. the case, you know, when, when, when a loved one ceases to seem in any way, shape, or form like themselves or in any way, shape, or form happy. And um, yes, I, I think truly the main thing I, I discovered, um, other than a real skepticism about uh, certain prescription drugs and some real concerns about how they're used, uh, I, I discovered just enormous compassion for people going through similar situations.
1: And it's so, it's so not linear for many folks, you know, their, their mom or dad or grandpa, grandpa's fine one day, totally sort of with it in the world. And then the next day, they don't know who you are. And it's, it can be very difficult. Um, Lost and found the title of your book, of course, that's, you know, usually the name of a box behind the counter at the library, maybe full of sunglasses, or as you were joking, a phone or two or a wallet. For you, how did the loss impact the found? Did the loss sort of change how the found unfolded for you? Well, I
0: mean, no question that, that that it did in the sense that you know, I I can very readily imagine the future in which my father was still with us. You know, uh, and I of course wish I were living that future. You know, my partner and yeah. I now have this beautiful baby daughter, and I, I would give everything, anything for. Um, her to have gotten to know my father and for my father to have gotten to meet her, you know, literally even once. Uh, so of course, you know, I'm, I'm very mindful that there's a universe in which I fell in love and I got to just keep kind of reveling in that. And, and my dad was there giving a toast at our wedding and, and my dad was there after our daughter was born. Um, and, you know, as it happens, that is not how things transpired. Uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, one plays the hand that one is dealt. And in this case, I think that um, as much as it was a terrible loss to not have my father in my life, it was such a gift to have my partner when he was dying and, and to have wow. her at my side when I was grieving him. Um and, and to feel that there was a kind of continuity there. You know, in some sense I there I was, you know, I I had just lost this absolute foundation of my family of origin and and Yet at the same time I I was making a family of my own and my dad was there for the kind of torch passing as it were and I'm I'm just so grateful for that.
1: Yeah, I mean, grateful is a very good word. Um, so thank you for that. Only a couple of minutes left. So um, the final essay of course is and, and I think we've discussed what that and is, at least in your life. Um, you proposed in the middle of a home remodel. That seems pretty, pretty bold to me. Um, And again, as you just alluded to at your wedding, there is that loss. Your dad is not at your father's not at the wedding, but yet there's this thunderstorm. And could you have planned that any better? I mean, it just freaking amazing.
0: (laughs) No, I absolutely couldn't. And I, I often think about how, right. I mean, that that's life, right? Like my wedding day was the most Perfect sunny balmy blue beautiful May afternoon you could ever hope to have, and truly the, the the kind of wedding day you dream of getting married on. And um, and then you know sometime around ten or eleven o'clock that night when when everyone was on the dance floor, this unbelievable electrical storm blew in. It was actually a, meant to be a tornado. Everyone's phones went off with these hmm. very alarming tornado warming warnings, but we didn't get the tornado, but we got one of the most epic storms I've ever witnessed in my life. And right, how appropriate, you know, life is sometimes sunny and gorgeous, and sometimes it's a tornado. And, you know, you're you're getting married and you're as joyful as you've ever been. Uh, and, and yet your father is still dead,
4: you know, and yeah. I'm not
0: there. And that is the nature of, grown-up life, we are always contending with more than one experience at once and
1: more than one emotion at once. At the same time, no less. So very good. Last question, Catherine Schultz, what are you working on now?
0: Well, for now, I'm just really enjoying uh, ushering this book into the hands of readers and getting to meet some of those readers and getting to keep talking about it. And that it, it's, it's a real pleasure after a lot of years of working on it in solitude to uh, see it out in the world and be out in the world with it.
1: Well, best wishes to you and your wife. You both work and write staff writers at The New Yorker. Congratulations for that. If folks haven't put it together yet, Catherine Schultz is the Pulitzer Prize winning piece from The New Yorker from a few years back now about the Pacific Northwest and the humongous earthquake and the fault line off the coast there. But for now, the book is Lost and Found. Fantastic, joyful read, at least to me. It was a pleasure to to get to meet you for a couple hundred pages. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you for reading it and for the kind words about it.
1: Oh, my pleasure, Catherine Schultz. Best wishes. Thank you for taking time to join us on Radioactive.
0: My pleasure. Take care.
1: As we roll into break here on Radioactive this evening, we want to take a moment and revisit the children's book that we discussed a few shows back, The A's and B's of our inland sea. And, of, and also, we want to feature a new song based on the book, All the Way from England, so The lake might be drying up, but the word is spreading wider and wider. So author Nicole Anderson, welcome back to Radioactive.
4: Thank you so much for having us back, Nick.
1: Oh, my pleasure. And from all the way across the pond, Emma Gale. Hi, Nick. Nice to meet you. Oh, thank you for doing this. This is pretty exciting. Um, As I mentioned, the Great Salt Lake is kind of drying up. But the word is going wider and wider. The New York Times had an article just yesterday or the day before about the ecological disaster that is the lake. Even our elected officials are paying attention. But Emma, tell me about this collaboration and how this got going with Nicole Anderson, the author.
2: Um, So I met a mutual friend when I was working um, in a small island in the middle of the Atlantic. um, And um, his favourite place actually happened to be the Salt Lake. So I remember him talking to me at the time. We left there, we came back. Um, and you know, when lockdown happened, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and I'd written written a couple of songs that I'd released. Um, and and through the songs that I released, I got in, I, we linked up with Nicole. Um and my very first song um was was kind of it had an environmental kind of slant because it was about lockdown and it was about how we um had, you know, that we didn't need the things that we didn't need anymore. So that kind of pick, you know, Nicole picked up on that. Um And so that was when she asked me to um do the song for
1: for her book that she was releasing. Sometimes collaborations go really well, and sometimes it 's kind of a train wreck, and people fight. Um, can I fairly ask Nicole that this was smooth? <laughs> it was really smooth. Emma was such a just
4: a jam to work oh. with, and we've built a lovely friendship we're looking forward to someday meeting in person and Singing the song together, um, it's been a lot of fun, and I've taken the song to elementary schools in the area, and and had the like kindergarten through third grade singing this song, and they just love it. And, oh wow! And and they they do always laugh about your favorite line, the otter.
3: <laughs>
1: yes, not many otters. That is my favorite line. Yes. Oh. So Emma, Emma Gale, you 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 have some other songs out. You've done some other work. Have you ever been to Utah or seen the lake yourself or what's left of it?
2: You know what, I haven't. um, But what I did was, um, obviously, I wanted to do as much research as I could while I was putting um, the song together. So I've actually I've actually become really fond of the lake. And, and, um, you know, I'm now interested in, in, you know, the things that people are doing. Um, It is somewhere I definitely want to go to one day. And I really do hope that that we can get over to see it. Um, especially, you know, with the news that it is it's drying up. And, um, you know, so I do want to see it. Um, and actually, you know, spread the word a bit, because I think, you know, I think we 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 kind of think that these things are, so, you know, they're across the other side of the world. They don't affect us. But actually, if it does dry up, it will have a massive impact on us all over the world. Um, so I think it is really important that that you kind of, you know, we're we're aware of that as well.
4: So the first time I actually heard it, in its entirety, my husband looked at me and he said, did you ever imagine that you would have inspired a song with this book? And and I, no, no, it was, it, it's just really so amazing. And so I really hope that many, many people hear this song and that it gets out in the world and people share it. And because what happens here in Utah will happen, you know, the, the wind blows and things spread all over the planet. And so it's not just, here in Salt Lake, it's it's will have a worldwide toll if it just if it
1: collapses. Well, thank you to you both. I really appreciate that. We all know the great Salt Lake is drying up. Utah faces, based on the New York Times headline, environmental nuclear bomb. We have climate change, we have drought, we have a thousand other things going on. And as all of our coverage, this conversation is aired through the Great Salt Lake Collaborative, a solution to journalism initiative that partners news, education, and media organizations, including KRCL, to help inform people about the plight of the Great Salt Lake and what can be done about it to make a difference before it's too late. You can read all the stories at Great Salt Lake News. And as we roll into break, Emma Gale, thank you. Nicole Anderson, thank you. We're going to hear your song. Thank you. My pleasure. This is The Great Salt Lake on KRCL.
4: From the north to the south,
2: in
5: the spring until fall. Year after year, the birds lift and they soar. There must be a sign up high on the flyway, because they know when to stop. Why they stay, it's a shiny oasis, tastes the salt in the air. It's the meeting of rivers, Jordan, Weber, and Bear. A 20 mile railroad cuts right through its core. Try to swim, and you float by the boats on the shore. The great salt Lake it's as old as. So she won. Daylight gets shorter The the gray Should flip.
1: KRCL's annual record and CD sale will be making its triumphant
4: return in 2022. We're planning something special, so stay tuned. But in the meantime, we'll be taking donations of your gently used, tremendously loved, but
2: slightly neglected records and CDs. If you can let go, we can make sure those treasures get their way to the next music lover in line. Donations are tax deductible and will help power your community radio station. 90.9 FM, KRCL. If you'd like to donate, reach out to me, Eric P. Nelson, at recordsale
4: at krcl.org for details. See you soon. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and their Love's Diversity Initiative. Mark Miller Subaru is a proud community partner of Project Rainbow, spreading love together this Utah Pride Month. Learn more at projectrainbowutah.org or markmillersubaru.com.
1: We are back on Radioactive. I am Nick Burns. And do please keep it tuned to your Community Connection. 7 p.m., Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Rude Awakening with Liz Schulte. That comes on at 8 p.m. And as always, Maximum Distortion with Forgatch and Cody D. Check that out at 10.30. And every weekday, it's a brand new day with John Florence, starting bright and early. 6 a.m. You can, of course, on demand hear all the last two weeks of our shows, including Radioactive. Click programming tab at krcl.org. And it's all made possible. Thanks to listeners like you. Up next on the show, Daisy Pitkin. Welcome to Radioactive. Hi, thanks
3: for having me on.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Your new book, On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. So thank you for that. Not at all what I was expecting, the way you constructed this book. So I want to ask about that.
3: Wonderful. I'm curious to know oh.
1: how
3: it, so, it deferred from... Where oh, very
1: good. So before we get into union organizing and all this work you did and the details of how you followed the trucks full of contaminated laundry, disguised your organizing in order to reach workers before management you know, could retaliate, as always happens, I want to ask about the style of your book. You call it nonfiction, you call it a memoir, um, and you've written it in the second person. It's almost like letters to one particular worker, a woman named Alma, um, with whom you will share the book proceeds. So I think that was pretty cool. So I wonder this particular style, sort of a dear Alma, how does this style fit your message and what you're trying to get at on the line?
3: Yeah, I I really wanted to write a book that Felt like the work of organizing, Mm -hmm. which to me, as a long term union organizer, is almost a sacred kind of space um, that workers build with each other, and that organizers who are lucky enough to get to work with really bold workers through long, difficult campaigns get to build with those workers. And part of the feeling of that space is kind of the frenetic urgency of the campaign that you're involved in, um, where you're the the workers are sort of being pummeled by an anti-union campaign on a daily basis in the factory or work site where they work. Um, So there's that feeling, but there's also this intense feeling of kind of intimacy and care that goes into the work of building the union. And I think that the second person address invites readers into that space, or, or I hope it does, or at least gestures toward that space, that there's a real intimacy that exists in in the exchanges that happen as people work together to build a union. Um, I was hoping that readers would sort of understand that intimacy a little bit through that second person.
1: Oh, I I think so. I think it does work. It just, I've never read a book quite like this. And of course, that's a huge pleasure to get something new, right? And to have a new way into the material. And of course, your title includes Two Women's Epic Fight. Alma was by your side the whole time, you know, fired, got her job back, on and on and on. And this whole time, you're unionizing these commercial laundry workers, immigrants, uh, many with troubles with English would be their second language. So tell me a little bit about Alma, because I know you're still in touch.
3: Yeah, so Alma is one of the most courageous worker leaders I've ever met. Um, She grew up in Mexico, in Northern Mexico. Um, Her grandfather was part of the peasant land struggles in Mexico. Her father was a copper miner and led strikes in the copper mines in Sonora. And so she grew up in a family that really understood the power of collective action. And she came to work at an industrial laundry in Phoenix, Arizona, where the conditions are um, often in that industry very poor um, dangerous um, in terms of exposure to chemical and biohazards from soiled hospital sheets that workers are sorting by hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on in the production line in the, in the factory, dealing with hot, heavy industrial machinery um, that you know, poses its own kinds of dangers. Burns and other kinds of injuries happen not infrequently in industrial laundries. And so as a new organizer for this kind of small, scrappy organizing union called Unite, I was a part of a team of organizers that were sent to Phoenix to see if it was possible to organize mostly immigrant, mostly women workers in this kind of invisible industry in a very deep red city, in a deep red state in Uh, our country where there was no union density. So like, what does it take? You know, it was, um, and they sent us there and and what it took was Alma. That was the answer. Um, Alma and her ability to build relationships and her sort of fierce um, fortitude uh, in the face of an anti-union campaign backed by a multi-billion dollar corporation. And she stood up and she fought with her coworkers for years and they won.
1: Yeah, she, as I mentioned, she lost her job or got her job back, so on and so forth. Um, is it hard to find an Alma in in every workplace, or are they there everywhere, do you think?
3: Yeah, one of the things that I think is really interesting, in my book, I, I write a lot about a, a heroine of the union that I worked for, its kind of precursor, the infamous International Ladies Garment Workers Union,
1: mm-hmm. and I write
3: about a young woman named Clara Lemlich who led shirtwaist workers in New York City into a massive strike of 20,000 uh, workers who were mostly young women, also immigrants, about a century before this campaigning was happening at Olmos Factory and other fact- industrial laundry factories in Phoenix. And you know, I think that part of writing the history that I write in the book and the portrait that I write of Clara Lemlich is to suggest that there's something funny about finding one among many um, of these courageous workplace leaders and writing a portrait of them that lionizes them. Though Clara Lemlich was an incredible person and union leader and organizer, I think that there are many of them. Anytime a union is one in this country, it's because there's a courageous worker leader or many of them or a committee of them, right? So there are There's no one quite like Alma. I would never say that because she's such an incredible human, as I hope people will learn from from reading my book. But there are courageous worker leaders. Every time there's a union victory, there's at least one amazingly courageous worker leader in that place.
1: Aren't you one of those? I mean, like you just said, you go to Phoenix to this bright red state and you're organizing these immigrant women who are full of fear and I mean, I'd have to throw you on that pile too, frankly.
3: I I think in my book, I purposefully complicate that notion because Mm. I um, you know, as a staff organizer for the union, I would I was risking nothing. There are workers who are risking their livelihoods at a job that they have to work in order to live. You know, people don't go to work at industrial laundries unless they really have to. So these are people risking jobs that they absolutely need to keep in order to live so that they can stand up and try to improve conditions not just for themselves but for their coworkers and for industrial laundry workers across the country as a staff organizer i risked nothing i was getting paid to help lead them through a fight and i think that's a it's a complicated dynamic that often goes uninterrogated in organizing work and i wanted to to put it on the page and invite people both in the labor movement and also Hopefully, readers who might not otherwise find their way to a book about labor to so yeah. think about the complicated dynamics at play in the fabric of a union as it gets built.
1: Yeah, good point. I mean, you probably risk physical health. There's the risk of being beat up because you're following people around and whatnot. But you do raise a good point in the book that you know you have a union job yourself. Is this part of the distinction you think that you make between what you call bread and butter unionism and business unionism. I thought that was an interesting distinction in your book.
3: I think of bread and butter unionism and business unionism as sort of broad patterns in the history of the labor movement. And I think there's a really important, um, another important pattern that I try to indicate in my book and that I've been thinking a lot about even since its publication because I've been lucky enough to be in conversation with really curious readers who are also interested in the same ideas that I am. Um, And that is this idea of the kinds of campaigns that unions tended to run in the early 2000s and probably the 10 years after that, which happened to be very staff heavy campaigns where they would send Mm -hmm. teams of organizers in, a target had been identified, and we were going to try to organize that. For good reasons, often, the targets were identified because we needed to build density in a certain industry in order to raise the floor nationally, right? Um, so we would choose certain targets and send a team of skilled organizers in and try to organize that workplace. And that model, that sort of staff-heavy, top-down model, relies a lot on the expertise that exists in the union to be able to win a union fight. hmm and during the course of those campaigns, in my experience, not very much thought goes into the union that's being constructed through the fight. What, is, what shape does it take? What relationship do the workers have with each other? What are they building that they get, then get to sort of own and control and be a vibrant part of as it moves forward into the future? we're so focused on winning the campaign that we're not focused on what it is that we're building. Right. Um, And I find now as an organizer today who, you know, I had to leave the labor movement for a while because I did get very sick and burned out and I'm back in the labor movement now. And the campaigns that I'm working on are taking a different kind of shape. There's a groundswell of organizing happening across the country at this moment. And a lot of it is very, worker-driven. It's it's driven from energy and momentum from the ground up. And the campaigns are not nearly as staff-heavy as they perhaps were 20 years ago. And so Very the different. union building that's happening is a lot more uh, sort of thoughtful and intentional because the workers are thinking about the union that they want to build as they move forward with their campaigns to win their union, right? Yeah. Um, There's sort of an interesting difference there that I've been thinking through a lot lately.
1: No, and that's good. You're actually a step ahead of me because I wanted to ask about that distinction between sort of the union of old and the union of new. You know, I can think of that, uh, I think it's Harvey Keitel and Richard Pryor movie from the 1970s, Blue Collar, where the union is sort of just as oppressive as the car plant. Um, It's a very different take. But for here and now, in the book, you do well cover this history that you just mentioned, the strikes from 100 years ago among female shirtwaist workers. You talked about Taft-Hartley Act of 47, which, of course, Truman vetoed. Congress passed it over him. Uh, Truman said it would kill unions. I'd argue Truman was probably right. Uh, You cover Reagan and the air traffic controllers completely busting that union and now we see starbucks including right here in utah we have starbucks voting to unionize um you have christopher smalls chris smalls with amazon it's just very different um so how's your work different and if you wrote a new book about what you're doing today would it still be in that kind of second person do you think
3: Uh, You know, I I get, I'm really fortunate in that I get to work on the Starbucks campaign um, at this moment. Um, And it is, a. the campaign is very different from any campaign I've ever worked on because it's led by workers who are organizing themselves and each other. And the staff organizers who work on the campaign, the few of us who there are uh, um, nationally on the campaign, really our role is to help build structure so that the workers can talk to each other um, because they're doing the work of organizing themselves. So we have to sort of take the skill and expertise and experience that we have, democratize it as quickly as possible, and then get out of the way. That's my whole job as an organizer on this campaign. Um, And I think it's really remarkable. So in that way, the I think that a book will be written about this campaign. I don't think that I will write no it. You? Okay. I think that a work, you know one of the worker leaders will someday down the road, write a really beautiful, compelling narrative about this campaign. and they will have their own Alma um, because they do. Those are the relationships that they have with themselves that they're forging not just in their own stores or in their own cities, but really across the country now. I mean, we have worker leaders in Boston who are talking to worker leaders in Nashville and talking to worker leaders in, in Seattle and all over the Pacific Northwest and in Fort Lauderdale and in Utah. And, the, you know, people are really starting to organize themselves into these national kind of working committees and taking on the work of the campaign and running with it. It's a beautiful thing to see.
1: Yeah, maybe unions do need to be something new, because it isn't, you know, 1935 at the, in Flint, Michigan anymore, um, near where I grew up. So that's kind of my history. So in this work with, with Starbucks today, and you mentioned Amazon, it's hard not to see the law tilting towards the owners. Um, and do you still think or do you still see that the same? Do you, In other words, have you seen any improvement? We've, we've heard President Biden talk about perhaps leveling the playing field, but I'm not seeing a lot of action in terms of legal protection for the organizing workers. And I wonder if you have. Anything better than it used to be for the workers?
3: You know, it's nice to have a president who says um, that people ought to have the right to join unions. Um, It's nice that there's a labor board that on a federal level is sort of fully, all of its positions have been seated. Um, Those are steps in the right direction. But you're right that labor law in this country is absolutely broken. It's broken. And there are loopholes in it so wide that companies just drive buses through them, you know, buses driven by multi- Uh. dollar union avoidance law firms like Littler Mendelssohn. So the law is, um, it's broken. And that's why it's part of why we're seeing this new kind of organizing. I think workers realize and sector after sector, we're not just talking about retail, we're talking about Librarians and museum workers and Amazon workers and miners and Alabama and college I mean, tech students, workers, yeah. I mean, college students, sector after sector, region after region in the country, workers are taking action together because they know that they have to take collective action in order to win because the law does not protect their right to organize at this point. I mean, if companies violate the law the way Starbucks is, and I know this one from you know, my work on the campaign, workers have had to file over 180 unfair labor practice charges in the last year on the campaign. The labor board has investigated many dozens of those group, dozens of them together, and has filed 10 major complaints against the company where they're actually bringing suit against Starbucks. But it all takes a very long time. And in the meantime, workers on the ground see the company breaking the law day after day after day, and there's nothing they can do to make it stop. And all of it sends a sort of chilling effect through the store. Mm
1: -hmm. Workers have to work
3: very hard to keep each other together and strong and stand up anyway in the face of this illegal union busting. And often in this country, what happens if an employer breaks the law knowingly, break the law, And it goes through the whole NLRB process where a worker files a charge, the labor board investigates it, finds it meritorious, brings them to trial, and then a judge does decide that, in fact, what they did was illegal. What the company has to do, more often than not, is put up a posting in the worksite saying, we broke the law and we'll try not to do it again.
1: Uh That's it.
3: Why would you not break the law if you were exactly. a company trying to bust a union? It incentivizes it actively.
1: Yeah, not mm-hmm. to mention the years and years and years of litigation to even get to the point of the poster and the other further 15 years of actually negotiating a contract. But, but I know we're going to run out of time here. And I have one more question I want to ask you about the book. So thank you for your work with Amazon um, and and specifically Starbucks today, because it is a brand new world, I think, for organizers. uh, And that's fantastic. But your book, again, second person addressed to Alma. um, And when when you mentioned to her that your book has these lengthy passages about moths, about the life cycle of moths, and your dreams about moths and the science of moths, when you mentioned this to Alma, she replied, Dios mio, ¿por qué? You know, oh my God, why? So I thought, wow, pretty cool. So I, I think I get the metaphor, you know, moths, you know, they they go through these metamorphoses and so on. But it's, it's really big for you. You return to this again and again. So why moths and maybe not butterflies? You
3: know, moths were... A very, it, it started not really as a metaphor or as Good. a a writing element in a narrative at all. It started in a very real way. And that is that there was a weird um, infestation of Miller moths that was happening around Phoenix at the time when we launched the campaign in Almost Factory. And her factory is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Production does not stop there. So a lot of the organizing meetings that we were having. We're in the parking lot in front of her factory. This was after the campaign had gone public, of course. And under the floodlights in the parking lot, and we would stand there at two thirty in the morning, and three o'clock in the morning, and four o'clock in the morning under these floodlights. And you can imagine there's this mass emergence of moths, and we're standing in a floodlight at night. The moths would just swarm these lights, and you could hear their bodies kind of plinking against the the light fixture and the light pole. And it became a, a sort of ambient sound mm-hmm. for the campaign at least in my mind and Alma and I at one point started calling ourselves Las Polillas the, the moths in Spanish it was sort of a play on uh, Las Mariposas because I was reading In the Time of the Butterflies by Julia Alvarez mm-hmm. in the motel at night and she writes about you know the Trujillo sisters who clandestinely opposed the Trujillo dictatorship in the Dominican the, excuse me, in the Dominican Republic. The Republic and right. they called themselves Las Mariposas, the butterflies. And so we joked that we were kind of their ugly cousins driving <laughs> in the dust of South Phoenix, trying to grind out our organizing one house call at a time. Um, and then in the time that I was away from the union, there was a time when Alma and I were not in contact with each other for reasons that I are in the book, but sort of near the end. So I'm not going to yeah. give them- No, there, no, no. People it can read that happens and we were not in touch for very many years sadly and during that time my kind of fascination with moths grew and i think it was a way to to miss her to think about mm-hmm. what had happened and my own role in it it's kind of a reckoning and so i didn't really know how to write the book without the moths
1: oh well i think it works i think it works really well i mean as you say it was a reality you were living but I just thought it made a really interesting metaphor too. You know, the workers eventually gather around a union like the moths around the light. So what are you working on next? I know we have to let you go. Well, now I am
3: really sort of enjoying speaking to people about the book. Um, Okay. I am. I write pieces here and there. I have a piece out in The Baffler about kind of the long shadow of the Gilded Age in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh where I live now. But mostly I'm, I'm really enjoying the work that I'm doing on the Starbucks campaign and watching daily these workers rise up and form union store after store.
1: Store after, I mean, 80, 90, 100 stores by now all across the country. It's pretty exciting. So thank you for that work. I might actually start going to Starbucks again if this is successful. If
3: you do, order your coffee Union Strong Okay. in the name Union Strong, and it helps the the workers there feel really kind of supported. It's a morale booster for them during this long. Okay, very good.
1: So, Daisy Pitkin, thank you. The book is On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. Real quickly, what's the status of the commercial laundries and unionization in Phoenix now, 20 years later?
3: You know, the industrial laundry workers there just did a mass collective action, along with industrial laundry workers in Nevada, New Mexico, and all over California. Um, Last week, they did marches on the boss with petitions in every unionized laundry demanding a living wage because they've watched wages rise in other industries kind of all around them, and their wages have not gone up, though they worked through the pandemic.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, as a lot of
3: essential workers did. So right now there's a very active demand for higher wages in those laundries. And I would like to see those employers go to the table and bargain with those workers because they deserve a living wage and so much
1: more. Daisy Pitkin, thank you for taking time to join us on Radioactive. Thank you. That's the show for today on Your Community Connection, 90.9 FM KRCL, and of course, online krcl.org. As always, thank you to all our guests today, to writers everywhere, and thank you, my thank you, especially to Radioactive producer Laura Jones. She certainly keeps me organized and on task. You, of course, can stream all our shows. Check it out, krcl.org. Follow the links to Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. Next up, Democracy Now!